welcome, welcome. My name is Abiola Abrams, and we have you exactly where we want you. You are in the zone of abundance, pray, love, flow, and grow rich. I'm so excited to welcome you to this podcast, to this journey, to this experience of abundance, pray, love. As you noted by the subtitle, Flow and Grow Rich, we are also working with the principles of Napoleon Hill's famous Think and Grow Rich. We, who's we? We (laughs) is my Abundance Pray Love partner, Medina Labakin, and myself. And we are the creators of the Abundance Pray Love Retreat which is a goddess retreat in Bali, and we would love to see you there. You can find out more about how to come to Bali with us and make someday today at AbundancePrayLove.com. But either way, these recordings are a gift from us to you for you to step into your greatness, step into your abundance, and step into your true self, becoming who you were born to be. Now, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill for the past few months has kind of been stalking me. (laughs) So in a way, we are doing this podcast and the book that is going to come after it to say, all right, you in, here it is. (laughs) Fine, we're living our dream lives and helping others to do the same. Fine, here it is. (laughs) With, of course, a lot more zest and purpose than that. That a few months ago, I started to, because I am, well, let me just take it back a little bit. I am, for the unacquainted, I am a speaker, I am a coach, I am an author, and I am your sister on this journey. I am simultaneously a spiritual teacher and a spiritual student. And my work is all about self-worth and us becoming, stepping into who we really are. I call myself a self-worth revolutionary or a self-love midwife. And where that comes from is that I am a fourth-generation empowerment specialist. My great-grandmother in Guyana, South America, was a midwife and a women's fertility healer. She helped women give birth to their babies, and I help women to give birth to themselves. And then Auntie, in the next generation, who raised my mother, was the owner of a house that was called the White House, which was like a bed and breakfast, where she would take care of people when they were coming off the railroad line, give them a hot meal and a place to stay, and care for them. Then my grandparents on both sides were farmers, and so there's a different There are different tales and levels of abundance here that we're going to get into, right? My grandparents on both sides were farmers. And then my mommy is, she was a teacher and worked in educational administration. She is a writer as well. And my pa, my dad, he is a retired journalist as well as a precious metals expert and a minister. 
So there's a whole lot of healing energy in there. And as I said, different tales and stories and levels of abundance. I'm sharing this with you because in this chapter, I'm going to be sharing a bit about my background and understanding of abundance before we get into the principles of abundance in the coming chapters. So around the time when my dad was born was around the time when Napoleon Hill published Think and Grow Rich. And so it's very interesting, although the chapter headings, the principles that we're working with are the principles from Think and Grow Rich, we are sharing our own teachings and our own experiences with abundance, with manifesting, with the law of attraction, law of inspired action, and other spiritual teachings as well. So I think that this is something that is really special because it comes from heart and soul as a sacred gift, and so I'm I'm very excited about this. So what does abundance mean to you? The obvious answer is abundant wealth, right? But abundance also means abundant health. Abundant wealth without health, you know, is nothing. There's also abundance wisdom. Abundant wisdom. Again, abundant health with abundant wealth, with perhaps without abundant wisdom, be a little bit lost, right? There's also, of course, abundance of love, right? All of these things, including abundant purpose work together to give us what we all want, pleasure, joy, happiness, fulfillment, abundance. Abundance also, you can say, is freedom because any of these levels of abundance will give us greater and greater levels of freedom. When we're talking about abundance in terms of money, we can easily see the connection between abundance and freedom. You can't have the freedom to be able to make an impact with if you are not feeling abundant. Now, this may mean that you have two pennies in the bank. Notice I said feeling abundant, right? Because it's all relative. If you're listening to this recording, chances are that you may be in a Western country, although not necessarily. The only reason I say that is because I am in the United States and Medina is in Australia, and so people from our home country are going to be listening probably mostly, right? Although I'm hoping my uh, people in Guyana and my other Caribbean people and my African people are also here on the line. (laughs) I'm my family in, in the UK, right? But if you are, for example poor in the United States, you are still in 3% of the top wealth in all the world. Take that in for a second. So this work is about us coming into the vibrational alignment with the abundance that is already, that we already have, that is already our birthright. How amazing is that? Feel that in your bones. As I said that, you know, abundance has meant different things to different generations of my family and yours, right? So take my great-grandmother, Ma, 
who was a midwife and a woman's fertility healer, although they didn't call it fertility at that time. She helped to adjust a woman's parts to help you to be able to have a baby, right? And give you the right herbs and, you know, tinctures to be able to help you to um, fulfill your desires in that area. And she was paid, yes, in coin, but sometimes she was paid in eggs. Sometimes she was paid in chickens. Sometimes she was paid in favors and bartering, right? But this was all abundance. She never went hungry. Her family never went hungry. She enjoyed her um, her purpose and the work that she did. I heard a great story the other day from an older family member that made me so happy about, like, how, you know, they would be like, tell her that, you know, such and such is ready to go, like the woman's ready to have the baby, and she would put on her boots. And I loved hearing that story, the thought of her, like, putting on her boots to go. Now, I met her when I was a baby before I died, before I died. <laughs> we all have been reborn, right, before she died. And she had gone blind, and she felt my face, and she said that I was beautiful, beautiful child. She couldn't see me with her eyes, but she could see me with her spirit. And so, you know, as I said, her idea of abundance, having an abundant garden with every herb you can imagine where she could be able to heal her family and heal her children and heal her neighborhood and her clients was an abundance for her. My grandparents who were farmers in their village, the way that it worked is that you grew on the farm, not for yourself only, and your family, but you grew and you sold um, the bulk of what you grew back to the corporation, it was called. So not too, not too dissimilar from uh, farmers here who sell their goods to someone else, right? They sold it to the corporation, and then with what was left, there was a lot of bartering. And a lot of just, you know, my grandfather on my mom's side, she tells the stories all the time how he would just basically feed everybody in the neighborhood. And there was also bartering taking place, abundance. Someone might look at them and be like, oh, these were small-town, you know, country farmers in South America. They were poor. But my mother nor my father remember a feeling of being poor. They felt abundant. They felt able to feed, you know, people who were in their community. They felt great about their feeling of abundance because they were abundant. They they were farmers who were reaping a bountiful harvest. My grandfather, on my dad's side, discouraged my dad away from going into farming and carpentry, which were his primary art, um, and told my father to do book work. Do book work. That's where the money is, right? He wanted my father to have a better way of life, and so my father came to the United States, went to Columbia University to, you know, create a different life. And so I'm very proud of my parents, you know, who came to this country, are educated, and neither one of their fathers on either side went past sixth grade. Like, it just makes me emotional to think of it. And so what I want for us with this work that we're doing is to elevate our families another step or another stage, whatever that means for you. It could be another step in consciousness. It could be another step in abundance. It could be another step in emotional growth, 
whatever it is, I want future generations, people to look back and say, wow, I remember that ancestor and what they did to move us forward, okay? And that all starts with you feeling abundant in the world, you feeling comfortable with who you are and your own freedom in this world. So my father, when I was growing up, he was a vice president of E.F. Hutton, which is a defunct <laughs> financial uh, business. It was like the Goldman Sachs of the 80s. Um, he was a, a, a VP there, and he was at Merrill Lynch um, during the time that I was growing up. And I had a lot of pride because my father had a lot of pride. We had a lot of pride in my family about my parents' accomplishments. And I love the fact that, you know, my my mom, when she came here, Although she was a teacher in Guyana, a lot of her degrees, her work didn't translate here, wasn't accepted by the school systems here. So she went back to school and she graduated with me the same time that I did. Like, how amazing is that? And a beautiful, my father and my mother both taught me very beautiful lessons about abundance and what to do and what not to do. (laughs) How to see yourself in your life and how not to see yourself in your life. And so I urge you to do an inventory of your own family and your own experience, your own money story, your own possible money blocks, you know, because, again, abundant wealth is a key part of abundance, that we tend to have one big money block that we have is thinking that, you know, money is a a, a bad thing to talk about, you know, and so... A lot of times if we're part of the spiritual community, it's a conversation that we shy away from. And I was a part of that for a long time until I learned that that was just another face of poverty consciousness. But I'll get into that in a little bit. <laughs> so my my parents, like I said, they both came here with basically change in their pocket. My mom cried when she came to the U.S seeing how dirty it was and how different Brooklyn, New York, where she lived, BK, (laughs) how different it was than what she thought the American dream had been or or the, the story that she had been sold or bought into. And interestingly enough that they're both from the same village in Guyana, but they both met here at a party, um, which is kind of cool. Uh, and had me, And I'm the first person in my family born in America. I am what has been called by some people who are really not fans of immigration and anchor baby. And I am grateful and humbled by that. You know, my parents gave up their whole lives to come here. Um, And... (laughs) I I I get anxious when I'm away from New York City. <laughs> so we've got to expand our views of the world and how we see ourselves. And that is part of, you know, what we're doing with the Abundance Pray Love Retreat in Bali. It's a pattern interrupt for, you know, there's a saying, if you keep doing what you've been doing, you're going to keep getting what you've been getting. And I talk to so many women and men who say they want to change or want a different life, but somehow they want this change and they want this different life to happen while they're still doing the same old stuff. No. That's why we are going to Bali and we are kicking it off with a full moon bonfire of healing to release 
you know, blocks with a Balinese healer. And so we're going to have not only coaching and, you know, healing, but we're working mind, body, spirit, and purpose with, you know, vegetarian, vegan, and raw food and yoga on a daily basis to really retrain your mind. A pattern interrupt needs to happen. And money beliefs don't just come from, you know, if you grew up having less or more or, or, or more, you know, it depends that I have friends who are heiresses who grew up with great wealth and have a lot of issues around that. So you're, no one is immune to having limiting beliefs. It just makes us human. They say that your personality is what you created to get out of childhood alive. And so now that we're not children, we can figure out something new, a new way to believe and a new way to be so that that 8-year-old or 12-year-old who formed those beliefs about you is not running your life. So one of the things, you know, that my dad did, talk about pattern interrupts and breaking, you know, thoughts that are not beneficial, is that I remember, for example, in my elementary school growing up in Queens, New York, one of my teachers telling us that, like, Harlem was, like, a really scary place. And, hey, it was the 80s, so statistically, like, if you look back at pictures, like, it was burning. It was, like, really crazy. It was, like, insane. And so, which is funny because now it's like one of my favorite places on earth and I feel like it's like, you know, my spiritual home. But, you know, the teacher would warned us about like how dangerous and scary Harlem is. And so, you know, in my childhood mind, I had like a picture in my head of like monsters living there. And I came home and I must have told one or both of my parents about this. And my dad was like, oh, no, 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 we are not having this young lady. Uh-uh. And people in Harlem look like you. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> like whatever your teacher told you. And I remember that my dad took my brother, my brother, me, I don't think my sister was old enough, but he took my brother, he took me, and we went to Harlem. Um, we had a day in Harlem. We had lunch. We went to go visit one of his friends, one of his classmates from college who was a dentist. We went to go visit his friend. And he was like, look, these are people. These are people who look like you. <laughs> some have more money. Some have less money. But they are all people. They are all human beings. And so it's interesting because I very clearly remember that lesson. And so does my dad, who reminds me <laughs> all the time. Um, but, you know, again, it was a shift in perception, a pattern interrupt. Another lesson that I had about money and class growing up was when I was about 12 and 11, 11 or 12, and I went to to one of the most elite if not, well, they frankly, they call themselves the best girl school in the country. Um, but, you know, I'm sure the other girl schools would argue. <laughs> and the school was created in the 1880s to educate um, the upper class daughters, who people whose parents didn't want them to just be um, ladies in waiting and wanted to give girls a real education. And so I went to this school on scholarship. And I remember having great shame about the fact that I was there on scholarship. I don't know that it came from anyone else besides me at that point. That somehow in my head, I felt like I was less than um, a full student. And it was very interesting. It was actually very jarring to my sense of self. Because before I went to that school, I thought I was rich. I thought I was a rich kid. <laughs> 
you know, it's all, again, it's all relative. And so in my Queens neighborhood, I had a certain perception about myself and my family and who I was. And I remember even like growing up and like watching the Jeffersons, like I didn't understand. I was like, wait, why they give, they moved from their whole house into an apartment and that's supposed to be a move up? Like I just did not get it. And the same with the girls that I went to school with. I was like, wait, but I I'm, I live in a whole house. <laughs> you live in, a, in an apartment. Until I went to those Upper East Side apartments and the country houses and the whatever and saw, oh, okay, it's a whole different thing. Whereas, you know, in my little neighborhood um, where, you know, somebody being rich meant that they own the corner store, right, or something like that, that here people were like, yeah, my grandfather owns the New York Times. Or, you know, yeah, that banking institution, that's my last name. It was a different kind of wealth, right? To give you an example, this is the school that Caroline Kennedy had gone to, that Rupert Murdoch's daughter went to. You know, it was just a different playing field. Not better, not worse, just different. And, you know, there was, it was very interesting, the ideas about money and wealth, because these were people who were, old money, Mayflower money. And so it was, again, a different mentality. So there still was, even though it wasn't stated in an outright way, there still was a different stigma about being Jewish. For example, there was a clear differentiation at that time between people who were, quote unquote, wasps, you know, and people who were Jewish, there was a clear differentiation at that time between people who lived on the Upper East Side and the people who lived on the Upper West Side, which was thought to be a little bit, you know, a little bit less elite, a little bit more well, well West, a little bit more on the avant-garde, or the people who lived in the village. A little bit of a distinction. Whereas someone from the outside would just look and be like, it's all rich white folks. <laughs> but there was, there were very clear and distinct class differences. Just like somebody who looks from the outside will be like, you guys are all from New York, what are you talking about? And we're like, uh, no, Brooklyn is Brooklyn, Queens is Queens, Staten Island is over there, the Bronx is over there, you know, and don't mix us up. Every Every community has that. Every community has that. And so the way that money was regarded was it wasn't. It wasn't like, you know, there was, again, a difference between old money and new money. New money talks about itself and wants to show itself off and be like, here I am, I'm rich, yeah. Whereas old money is like, aha, it just is. And if you have to ask, then clearly you're not included. And so because we adapt the behaviors of the people that we are around, that I took up a lot of those old money beliefs that didn't serve my new immigrant behind <laughs> when I became an adult. You know, there was a pervasive belief that money, you don't talk about money. It's kind of tacky and gauche to talk about money, which again makes sense if you are an old money family. Maybe maybe part of it is you don't want to talk about money because then you got to get into how you made the money. <laughs> I was watching something once. Um, it was it was the show Southern Charm, which is a reality show um, that comes on on Bravo that is set in South Carolina, I think. Charleston, is that North or South Carolina? I think South Carolina. And, you know, people, folks live on plantations. 
But the one person who mentioned slavery was kind of like, ooh, I can't believe, why would she say slavery? When it was clear that all the wealth of everyone on that show, you know, half the cast doesn't have to work for a living, came from slavery. And so, you know, there was, and not to say, you know, I don't know the, the where the money came from of the people that I went to school with, but of course some of it came from slavery. If we're honest about American history, it's not a slander, that's not a slur, it's just real talk. So, you know, but there was a belief of, you know, it's tacky um, to talk about money. It's tacky to, you know, talk about the fact that everyone has drivers, either they're walking to school from the most expensive real estate in the country, or they're driving, their drivers bringing them to school. And again, no value judgment around that at this moment, I'm telling you, that that is not bad or wrong or shameful. Because it's another limiting belief for us to believe that, you know, oh, you know, rich people or rich, you know, rich, young, rich girls, you know, how dare they or that they should hide it or they should. No. And I'm sure there may have been some of that as well, that, you know, the beliefs of, of there's a lot of shame and blame and guilt around money. And money is not good or bad. It just is. And so if your reality is that your parents send you to school with a driver every day, there's no shame around that. My sister, and I tease her all the time, I'm like, yeah, I was fighting it out on the subway every day. My parents sent my sister through the whole of elementary school in a cab back and forth. So is that that different? Clearly, no, we didn't have a family driver at all. But they sent her in a cab every day back and forth to school because they wanted her to do to do that. And they could do that for their daughter. And hey, that's what they did, right? Didn't do it for me, but you know. <laughs> um, so... I adapted some of these beliefs, you know, and so some of that belief system was that there, again, was a differentiation between the help and the non-help. And it wasn't, again, it was a very subtle thing that I remember very clearly sometime in middle school having a conversation with a group of girls about the elevator lady. Um, I don't know if there's a better term, but that's what we called the women who ran our elevators at that time, the elevator ladies who ran our elevators in school, the, about the elevator lady. Like, oh, you know, how boring that she has to stand there doing the elevator all day. I wonder if she has hopes. I wonder if she has wishes. I wonder if she has dreams. Like, we're talking about a different species. Of course that woman has hopes and dreams and family and a whole life that is away from that elevator. Just because she's standing there for your bratty behind, you know, me included, pushing the buttons, that, that that's not the totality of her being. But I remember participating in that conversation, right? And so... It was very interesting, again, pattern shift, pattern interrupt, you know, grateful for my parents, visiting my dad at work. And, again, there's a difference between my dad, who had a quote-unquote good job, and people who have generational wealth, (laughs) you know, who may be working by choice, you know, or people who make, you know, statements like our president are like, oh, well, I was only given given $8 million to start my business or whatever it was, Right. This is very, very different. So I remember visiting my dad at his office, and I remember kind of feeling like, oh, okay, you know, my uh, little new attitude from school. Okay, well, you know, the person, like, my, my dad spoke to every single person in the building from the janitor to whomever, right? Um, because he didn't see any different, rightfully so, difference between him and the rest of them. And I remember feeling like that, like, Oh, well, you know, being at his office and having the same 
thing that I picked up from school that, of course, you would never, ever say because we were intelligent, well-behaved young ladies in theory. We would never, ever say that we were above anybody, but there was a belief where people treated the help like they were invisible by not speaking to them or being derogatory. And I remember coming into my dad's office and someone was taking out the trash and not saying hello. And my father was like, uh, did you say hello to James or whatever his name was? You know, and, you know, corrected me and checked me and was like, oh, that man looks like you. What is you? You know, like, uh-uh. And that story I don't think my dad does remember because he hasn't told it. <laughs> I won't remind him. But, you know, which, again, was a powerful lesson and an important lesson. An interesting thing is that people who are immigrants will relate to this, newer immigrant descendants. We have to send a lot of money back home to take care of our families back home. And there's a perception of, you know, the people that you leave behind that you somehow are in America prospering and we keep up that story too. And so my family, you know, was sending a lot of money and a lot of stuff back home and, you know, stuff like that that they didn't necessarily always have. But again, you know, it's A, to help, but B, also for perception. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, the the front putting up money on the front end or the um, the visual look of having money when you don't necessarily have it. That's another um, trap and limiting belief that we'll get into in later chapters, right? Um, it wasn't until I was a teen and I had my first job, probably about 15 or 14 or whenever you're first allowed to work, and I got my working papers, which is what they're called in New York City, to be able to have a summer job and went to, I was working in a shoe store, B-I-M, <laughs> which is a quote-unquote urban shoe and uh, jean emporium in New York. And I was working there and um, then I, re I started to realize the value of money. I didn't, I didn't understand. I, no one taught me that when you, I remember one time asking my mom for money for something and a recession had started. My father had gotten laid off and my family was doing, you know, on some like difficult times. And I remember asking my mom for money for something and it was the first time that she said to me, I don't have it. And I said, mommy, just write a check. And she said, there has to be money in the bank to back up the check. And I had no idea. I had no idea. I didn't have a money education that in their attempt, in my parents' attempt to do better than they, to do what they thought was right, that they hadn't given me a money education. And it's interesting that I'm sure that, you know, do do some, some searching into your own beliefs about money that I tend to find when I work with women and men. I don't work with men, but I tend to find when I when I speak to mixed audiences, similar patterns. Our beliefs and the ways that we treat money and sexuality and food tend to be all the same, all the same, whatever, shame, blame, guilt, whatever it is, very similar. So it's interesting because, you know, I was in a house also where I didn't learn anything about sexuality, I also learned very poor um, things around food. And so it's very interesting. And again, my parents did the best that they could with what they knew. But having that job allowed me to see, oh, okay, when I'm asking for $300 to get my hair braided, look, it takes me all week to earn that, or it takes me however long to earn that. Um, you know, so it gave some perspective. So what I want you to take from what I'm sharing with you 
is that it's really important to do an excavation of your own beliefs before we start to jump into the next chapter, which is on desire, and then the one after that, that's faith, where we're going to be working with the principles of abundance and manifesting and the law of attraction, you know, that I've worked with a lot of people who feel like, oh, well, I watched a movie, The Secret, and then, you know, I pinned some things to a vision board, and it didn't work. Well, baby doll, you didn't work it, (laughs) which is, you know, us becoming aligned with the vibration of what it is that we want so that it's really the next logical step what we want um but i'll get more into that in the desire chapter right and so you know what is your abundance vibration what is your money vibration what are your money stories that you have your formative money stories like i remember one story where in my school middle school Caroline Jones, who is the first member of my class, um, sadly, who has lost her life, who has transitioned from this life. She had brain cancer. She was a beautiful, beautiful person. I remember in maybe seventh or eighth grade, Caroline giving me as a gift, the part of Secret Santa. She bought me a $16 lipstick. It was a brand named Poopa. And it was a lipstick that had a mirror attached to it. And I was like, oh, my God, it's like a $60 lipstick. And it made sense. It was like, yay, okay, it was Secret Santa. And I remember my mom being like, $16. Now, I'll give you my mom. You could say any amount of money to my mom, and she would be like, oh, my God, any amount is too much. It's very interesting. Anyway, my mom was like, $16, that's too much. Like, she wanted me to take it back and give it back to the girl. And I was like, no. Like, I had to explain to my mother, no, you know, this is what we do, you know, whatever it is. And then I felt ashamed because my mom, whatever gift that I was supposed to buy for the Secret Santa, she was only like, no, let's give them a $5 gift. Or, and it was like a whole thing. So, again, you know, shame, blame, guilt, all of those layers. Let's peel those layers off. Let's get rid of those layers. Let's dismantle every single one of those limiting beliefs. Because, as Marianne Williamson so eloquently put it, that if you are a light worker on this planet, and I have no doubt that you are because you are listening to this, that it's, it's not only okay for you to make money, it's your duty to be abundant and make money. You got that? It is your duty because you are here to shift and change things. And you can only do that if every day your belly is full, <laughs> you have a roof over your head, and your basic needs are taken care of. Again, root chakra. This is root chakra stuff. Issues around safety. Even like I talked about, you know, issues around sexuality, food, money tend to be the same. Root chakra clearing and issues here. Okay? So, what is your money story? How has your history with money formed your belief system? And which beliefs are you willing to release? All right, my love. I hope that you have enjoyed this conversation. I will see you in the next lesson. Oh, and of course, if you want to come to the Abundance Pray Love Retreat, where we can get to the bottom of this and get into it and have a pattern interrupt and have an amazing time in Bali. Bali, (laughs) then go to AbundancePrayLove.com.